Welcome to the Saturday Night Live After Party. This week we'll be taking a look back at SNL's November 18th, 1978 episode from its fourth season with host Carrie Fisher and musical guest the Blues Brothers. I'm John Murray and with me this week is improv and sketch impresario Dave Buckman. Dave has studied, directed, performed and taught in many of the nation's premier sketch comedy haunts including Chicago's Second City, I.O. and Annoyance Theatres and is currently running Austin's Cold Town Theatre, Sketch Fest and Out of Bounds Comedy Festival. You can connect with Dave on Twitter at Dave Buckman. And you can connect with me at snlpodcast.com. If you're enjoying our show, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons get early ad-free access to each new podcast episode, as well as many other exclusive member rewards. It's your support that makes the cast possible, and we are so thankful to everyone who's already pitched in. To learn more, go to patreon.com forward slash snlpodcast. All right, enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, Harry Fisher. Well, welcome back, Dave Buckman. Thank you for having me. No problem. Uh, we were able to connect for the Emma Thompson episode back in the spring. Yep. And uh, we settled on the Carrie Fisher episode as our next vintage rewatch. Uh, tell me a little bit about why you thought this was the one that we wanted to zero in on. Well, this is the one that I wanted to zero in for sure, because this was uh, probably the most formative uh, hour of television of my childhood. Okay. My parents were one of the first early adopters of VCRs. They would religiously tape Saturday Night Live and SCTV. Mm-hmm. So we had just had tapes and tapes and tapes of these. Uh, so I got indoctrinated. Instead of like going outside and playing on a Saturday afternoon, I would yeah. just like watch hours of Saturday Night Live and SCTV. Okay. Uh, and this was by far my favorite one that I must have watched 100 times before I turned 12. Okay. Now, what is it that spoke to young Dave Buckman? There is so much going on. First of all, it's Princess Leia. Right. You know what I mean? And also the Blues Brothers. Sure. And then there's a full cast sketch and sketch after sketch is just so funny. And there's iconic characters all on the same stage and everybody is hitting home runs. And also my parents had taped Godspell right afterwards. So okay. it was like a four hours of sure. It, that was my Thomas the Tank Engine, I guess. Okay. All right. Well, I guess that ex- explains a lot about uh, what molded you into what, you know, you inevitably <laughs> became. You didn't stand the chance if yeah. this is uh, kind of what you were uh, being fed on as a, as a youngster. I was just so fascinated by this episode and I just, I couldn't get enough of it. Excellent. Yeah. It does have a really great energy. It builds to some good momentum. It does have a lot of home run sketches that just are just well-crafted, well-written. There's just a lot that uh, stands the test of time about this episode that I was kind of surprised of because a lot of that early SNL, it's kind of a creature of its era and uh-huh. it doesn't always age great. And some of it doesn't. No, it definitely has its moments. Yeah. <laughs> but this is definitely the peak of their Hollywood moment. Like this is the height sure. of their popularity. This is the season before Ackroyd and Belushi left. Right. This is the se- the last season they were all together. Uh, this was just like iconic pop culture right. things happening all at the same time, converging in that one studio. And I think it was just everybody was at the height of their powers. Yeah. Yeah. They had a few seasons behind them. Now they knew what they were doing. Everybody just was on top of their game. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, before we uh, dig too deep on the Carrie Fisher episode, let's talk a little bit about uh, what's been cooking down in Austin. You want to tell us uh, how did Sketchfest go? Let's start there. Sketchfest was awesome. We had Ego mm-hmm. uh, from the current cast do her one woman show, which was fantastic. Now, uh, let's let's zero in on that for just a second, because obviously okay. there's SNL tie in. Let's let's explore this. Sure. 
we've seen very little of Ego on SNL at this point. You know, she's mm-hmm. had a, a couple sketches, but nothing where the, she's been too front and center. Maybe Thirsty Cops was probably the highlight of her participation for season 44. Right. So you've had a chance to now kind of just absorb her as a performer front and center for mm-hmm. what, an hour? How long was her, her show? 45, I'd say. 45. So you got the full Ego experience. What would you say based on now what you understand about her performance style and what her skill sets are, mm-hmm. what could she be doing or what could SNL be doing to, to be better utilizing her at this point? Let her loose. I okay. mean, she's got so many characters and wide range of characters. Her whole show was about how she's like half very high uh, status and half kind of ratchet at the same time. <laughs> All right. So she just kind of divided the stage back and forth between these ratchet characters and these very, um, high status people with like authority and uh, power okay, and agency and status. Sure. You know what I mean? Yep. And so she would do like a podcast sketch with one of her ratchet characters. She would be a uh, doctor uh, addressing the audience in another sketch, but mm-hmm. they're so funny and so silly and so charismatic. All of the characters that they all just pop off the stage. Okay. And so I really haven't seen that yet on SNL, but I hope they just, trust her enough to like put one of her own things up there without too much editing, editing to the point of like not getting it on air. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. Cause what I saw anything that she did in that show would have been perfect for air. Okay. You know, maybe finding creative ways to get around some of the curse words, <laughs> Sure, but it's very funny. All right. The live audience. I'm sure she'd kill with the audience in the house. Okay. So you've seen what the producers obviously saw that got her the gig. Um, for sure. But now I think the, the real challenge, if I'm hearing you correct, is she's got to figure out how to, you know, spin these up and turn them into vehicles for the show. And, uh, the show needs to get on board. If there's writers at the show that are trying to get some stuff produced, know that Ego's got a wealth of characters and bits that, that could easily be parlayed. And she doesn't even that much editing. They're all ready to go. Okay. You know what I mean? I think the fear would be like somebody, like partnering with her and kind of watering it down. Okay. So she needs to stand on her own feet then. She just needs to write write these things up and just get them in the table read. And She needs to defend these sketches. Okay. All right. Well, uh, I guess she's got to dig. She's got the material. She just yeah. has to, you know, get it out there now. Yeah. All right. Well, that's that's exciting. I really hope that we see something a little bit more uh, defining from Ego this season. Mm-hmm. And we also had Amber Ruffin from the yes. Seth Meyers show. And she was great too. So you actually produced a whole show for her that did a run at your theater, right? Yeah. She wrote a musical called Bigfoot, the musical with this guy, Dave Schmoll and Kevin Serretta. And, um, uh, we produced it. We did a six week run of it. We rehearsed it. We cast it and, uh, it sold out and we're going to do another run in the fall. All right. So that's awesome. Now, uh, you're not done yet. You got one more festival before the summer closes out. Yeah. We got the out of bounds comedy festival in Austin. That's Labor Day weekend. Uh, and we've got Scott Asset from 30 rock coming. Mm-hmm. We've got Laura Keitlinger. Oh yeah. From Pen15 and who used to be on SNL. Right. We got this group called Dasarisky, uh, that features Craig Kikowski from um Drunk History and Community. Okay. Yeah. And then Vanessa Gonzalez, who's a local hero that's making it big in LA right now. She's got a special on Comedy Central coming out soon and uh HBO Latin. Okay. Very good. You got a stacked lineup. Uh what are the dates yep. and uh, how can people get tickets? Uh it is Tuesday, August twenty seventh through September second. All over Austin at the Hideout Theater, at Cold Town Theater, at the Fallout Theater, at the Velveeta Room, and uh, at the North Door. Uh, and you can get tickets at outofboundscomedy.com. Excellent. Okay. Uh, I think we have uh, sufficiently pimped the latest Austin happenings. Those are all the plugs. Uh, let's talk a little Carrie Fisher. Yeah, let's do it. For our cold open, we get the Blues Brothers performing Soul Man. 
Yes. Was this how we wanted to kick off the show? Yes. This is the best. This is the best. This might be the first song I ever memorized. Okay. That song that they do at the top of that when they're doing the uh, the briefcase stuff. I walked out to that. They announced at my wedding. They announced Mr. and Mrs. Buckman for the first time. I had the band playing that. And that moment when they are so still. Yeah. And then they just explode. Yeah together at the same time it's such an iconic moment it's in every saturday night live highlights package right yep yeah heads down very stoic yeah all the the calm before the storm and then yeah the legs just start going 90 degrees oh my god (laughs) and i can't even tell how they're doing it to this day yeah it looks like magic to me what they do with their legs in that yeah it's utterly ridiculous how it comes off but also just how hard it must be to just nail the timing on that and just have that energy and poison just knock it out of the park i love Ackroyd. i love Ackroyd so much in this and belushi is up and down for me Uh but in that moment oh my god the two of them together are just like perfect yeah what you got to respect about belushi is first off he shows a little bit of physicality there right like he comes in does the somersault to kick things off so that's that's respectable but uh as much as he maybe has limited range you got to respect how like in the pocket he is like how his timing is so (sighs) precise with with this kind of music you really want to be in time with the music you can't be sloppy with it you got to really hold your own that way and uh, yeah. he's great at that he's just really in the it's moment so and really sells the songs and then you've got Ackroyd in the background just I, he's making me chuckle my eyes always go to him because uh, me too. you know he's always giving you those little like bass notes to just kind of accent what Belushi's doing and, and to me that is just so funny that you would think that he is the useless brother in the duo and then he pulls out the harmonica from the you know the protected uh handcuffed case you know that is this is like you know the most important <laughs> possession that he owns the harmonica um, you know he he pulls it out and then he he totally rocks it and you're like okay I, I get it i get it yeah so it's it's um it's so competent it's so powerful and overwhelming and just funny to boot it's 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 a really weird thing to see uh but i love it Ackroyd's got like 10 different dance moves in that <laughs> yes. thing. That's just like, everyone is just like, how is he doing that? Yeah. How does he know all these steps? Yeah. This big lanky goof. It, it was just yeah, oh something he was meant to do, I guess. Uh, so this is fun. This is what they used to uh, warm up the crowd with. So you can yeah. see like probably how many times they perform this, that it comes off so effortless when you actually see it on screen. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Um, and obviously, you know, they parlayed this into a film. So uh, there's, there's some history and, and some relevance that lingers just because of kind of how big the blues brothers got over the next couple of years touring and all the rest of it. Sure. Uh, so yeah, this is a definitely a classic moment for the show and uh, it, it creates an energy. I, I can't think of why they wouldn't do something like this. If, if they're going to double down on, on blues brothers. Sure. Just, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Go for it. And there's, you can see the band. It's the Blues Brothers band mm-hmm. plus Paul Schaefer plus Steve Cropper and Roger Duck Diamond. Yep. And, uh, and the rest of the, Matt Guitar Murphy from the movie mm-hmm. and they're all there. Yeah. They're all there from the, from the movie and it's, it's special. It is. Yeah. It's a very nice moment and it's, it's well earned uh, when you see it in the clip shows and yep. the things that SNL puts out over the years, you understand why this was a, a big moment and uh, yeah, they, they just did a great job on it. Uh, high marks for Ackroyd and Belushi and their backup. It was uh, yep. a nice way to open the show. Right. Now, were we able to keep the energy going with Carrie Fisher's monologue? Yes. Princess Leia came out. <laughs> okay. Well, that, that's fine. Monologue. I don't need to set it up. We'll just go from there. <laughs> I mean, I think she's, oh yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's okay. So well, yeah, we're going to leave that in just for, cause your enthusiasm, I think that needs to be preserved <laughs> for posterity, but 
the setup for the monologue is a disembodied Obi-Wan Kenobi helps Carrie Fisher to tell her joke. And then there's a soft transition into our first live sketch, but we're going to, we're going to tackle that separate. So right now right. let's just talk about the star Wars bit here that uh, prefaces the, the first sketch. Star Wars had taken over so predominantly in American culture that the whole thing was just an inside star Wars joke. Right. That works. Okay. Even if you hadn't seen star Wars, you knew enough about it to understand what was going on here with the mm-hmm. joke, which is pretty impressive. Uh, some super inside Star Wars references. Yeah, George Lucas's um, trademark clunky dialogue all just kind of regurgitated there to the point where you know that it's structured like a joke, but mm-hmm. what does it all mean, right? Like you literally would have to be a Star Wars character to have any concept of why this should be funny. But you've got Obi-Wan Kenobi there uh, disembodied just cracking up as you go through it. So yeah, there, there's something kind of neat about uh, how they're goofing on, uh, you know, the, the Star Wars quality of this overly technical gobbledygook uh, dialogue that Carrie Fisher herself is on record saying is just, you know, the most terrible stuff to have to try and uh, deliver. Uh-huh. Yeah. So th- there's definitely something there. My feeling on it, if I'm going to be perfectly honest, is I get the joke and I'm a Star Wars nerd and I, you know, I, I definitely get what they were shooting for here. The only thing that was a little difficult for me is that right out of the gate, she comes out and she doesn't really get much of a reaction from the audience in the lead up to this bit. Mm-hmm. The audience doesn't quite know where she's going or how to follow. And uh, there's just a lot of silence there that was a little bit awkward. And I mm. felt like, you know, she's holding it together and she gets there. And then we get into the, you know, the, the beach blanket stuff. So, uh, you know, this doesn't last too long, but I felt like there was a pretty long road to get mm-hmm. to where this joke was going. And I felt that a bit. And I feel like the audience there at the time felt that a little bit, uh, in hindsight, it doesn't hurt so bad because you know, the, the show doesn't hang on this one particular joke. And by the time you get to the end, you see what they were going for. So it's, it's all good. But I felt that there was just a, yeah, a little bit of hesitation on the audience's part to kind of ramp up with her on that. Uh, I disagree. Okay. I think, <laughs> uh, I think that uh, that's part of the joke is that she doesn't know how this is going to go. Sure. She's nervous. And so Obi-Wan told her to tell a joke to kind of loosen up the crowd. Mm-hmm. So I think she was, I might've been Carrie Fisher acting. It could have been. I am not a star Wars nerd by any stretch. And I love this okay. uh, moment so much uh, because it's all that gobbledygook that maybe even Ackroyd even wrote, but think about how fast Ackroyd just went from singing and dancing his heart out to a spot on Alec Guinness impression sure. and carrying that sketch. And then going into what, what he's about to do next, it's just super impressive how much range and how much command he has of his, of his instrument. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That he can just turn on a dime like that. No, there's definitely a lot there to respect. I don't want to yeah. be overly critical. Like, it, it does ultimately work. Mm-hmm. I just know that my first impression just out of the sure. gate was I was feeling a little bit of nerves for Carrie Fisher there at the beginning. Uh-huh. And it took a little bit before I kind of got on board and saw where they, they wanted to go with it. But everything that you're saying, absolutely. You know, there's a lot to take away here. And they may have wanted to come out and maybe create that atmosphere a little bit. And like you said, Carrie Fisher really could have just been selling the nerves because that's part of the bit. Who could say? I can't yeah. say. But if she was, if it was her acting and selling it, I was definitely picking up what she was laying down. I always read it as uh, it was intended. Okay. It's part of the joke. Well, very good. I mean, if 12 year old, you just like took it hook, line and sinker, then, (laughs) then great. Like that's probably the more honest read of it because I'm looking at it separated from the era, looking with uh, critical eyes. So I think Mm. if it played right for you, when you're just kind of taking it in on its terms, then that's gotta be a success. I think recently, you know, in the last 20 years, television comedy, especially Saturday Night Live, has been set up joke, set up joke, set up joke. And there's a lot more pauses and silences and experiments with emotion, Yes, I think, 
back in the day. So I don't think they were that concerned about having that awkwardness if it felt like it was going to set up the joke better. Yep. No, you're absolutely right. It was more adventurous at that point. Yeah. And you're also the, the pace of the comedy and what the audience Mm -hmm. was willing to accept as far as that emotional roller coaster. Um, yeah, it it was, they could be a lot more adventurous and they could let things linger and they could enjoy those awkward moments. Uh, we just have, uh, such a fast paced, low attention span Mm -hmm. version of SNL. Now that this starts to feel of a different era. And so maybe that's what I was picking up on too. And I should have just been taking it for the, the ride that it was intended to be. Oh, for sure. But regardless, I think we can both say that ultimately it got where it wanted to get. She, yep. she carried herself well. Um, and then, you know, especially if you're back in the late seventies where star Wars was all the rage, you know, this is just going to land because there she is in the buns and it's princess Leia. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons why this is a win. So I don't, I don't think we need to <laughs> dig much deeper on it for sure. Um, so at this point, Carrie Fisher just kind of transitions us into a pretty epic sketch where we oh get, you know, uh, pretty much the entire cast along with appearances from Brian Doyle Murray, Harry Shearer, Paul Schaefer, uh, Alan's Bell, and so many more. Uh, you get Franken and Davis in there too, who were featured players at the time. So we get beach blanket bimbo from outer space, which is a send up of the <laughs> Frankie and Annette beach party movies of the early sixties. Lay this out. What was working here? Why, why was this how we wanted to kick off the night? Oh my God. This sketch is everything to me. Okay. I mean, it taught me so much about sketch comedy, just the soft transition, which I'd never seen before. Mm-hmm. Cause I mean, I'd seen a lot of silent lives and that one always stood out to me as like, well, that's, that's not like the rest of the episodes. Right. You know what I mean? That They never do that. They just kind of like float into the first sketch. Yes. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that was special for me. The fact that it's a full cast scene, the fact that it's not even just a full cast scene, it's a full staff scene, mm-hmm. which is very special. Uh, Cause you had seen these people here and there in the background of sketches, but now here they were all having lines. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the special effects, which, you know, as a kid was pretty cool. How she <laughs> beams down from uh, studio eight H into the fifties movie. Yeah. Uh, just so many new things that had not that I had not seen in any other Saturday Night Live sketch amongst all the other episodes that I was watching at the time. Even, you know, at that point, it's in the 80s and I'm watching them and I'm watching the live ones with Eddie Murphy and still watching the old ones sure. during the day. Uh, nothing looked like the sketch at all. And it was just so funny, too. They're openly talking about sex in a funny way, <laughs> not in a shameful or dirty way. You know what I mean? The way mm-hmm. most adult sex jokes go. It was fun and silly. She's like, I'm Annette, and this is my boyfriend, Frankie, and these are my breasts. Like, <laughs> yes. that blew my mind as a 12-year-old boy. Like, here's an actual woman making jokes about her breasts, not in, like, a shameful way or, like, uh, you know, even derogatory way. Just, it's just, they're just there. Yeah, she's calling attention to yes. what is obviously on display in those movies, yep. but nobody's ever supposed to really acknowledge, yes. right? <laughs> it, yes. It's there for the audience, yeah. but they turn that on its head, and they, they have that little wink uh, with the eyes of a... Uh, more sophisticated generation. This mm-hmm. isn't the fifties. This is the seventies commenting on the fifties. So there's something kind of yes. charming there about how quaint they think it is that, uh, you know, these kids aren't going all the way and that it's, it takes effort for uh, Frankie to be able to get to first base with a net, like right. all of these quaint ideas they're trying to cast a light on, which adds another layer of context to what's going on, which is charming too. Um, this was a lot of fun, very busy. You know, this, this just, rocks and rolls from you know one bit to another uh-huh. uh so like there, there's a lot <laughs> a lot to take in uh but certainly a fun ride i love that they go from vincent price 
the chubby checker, right. Eric Von Zipper. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't even know who Eric Von Zipper, I mean, is it a Marlon Brando character from the wild ones? Is that who's supposed yeah, to I be? I think that's what it is. He's, he's the bad boy in the leather jacket, but they just made up some guy named Eric Von Zipper, which is such like a great <laughs> third beat to a wonderful heighten. Yes. You know, one, two, three game. Um, and then that catchy song at the end, which I could not stop singing throughout the, my entire teenage years. I love that song. Teenager from outer space. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. And uh is in Paul Schaefer, you can just hear all over that song, right? right? I mean, that is Paul Schaefer music to a T. Yeah. Every little part of that is kind of fifties fetishism, uh girl group <laughs> kind of wall of sound. Yep. And plus you had all the cast members in their bathing suits, which as a twelve year old, thirteen year old sure. is pretty yeah. fantastic too. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that uh the show obviously understood if they're gonna have Carrie Fisher on that maybe they would capitalize on everything that she could bring to the show. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, the, this, this was a big way to, to start the live material for the night. Um, it set a great energy. It was fun. It was a fun throwback. I just enjoyed that. I got it because as a kid, you know, mm-hmm. they, these were Saturday afternoon reruns, but I saw, you know, most of those, uh, you know, Gidget, uh, mm-hmm. Frankie and Annette, right. Even some of the Elvis fair kind of caught on with the, you know, with the beach party Clam sort of genre. <laughs> uh, so yeah, there's, it, it's a very um, instantly accessible thing that they were goofing on. So yeah, e- very easy to enjoy this ride. Yeah. Yeah. So, so far I, th- I think we're saying this show's kind of doing its job, right? Like it's keeping, keeping up the pace. It's got a good energy. What, what's better than classic iconic. Is this an iconic episode? Uh, well, <laughs> sure. I mean, if we want to throw another layer on our scale, if you think, <laughs> if you think you're willing to go out there and, and say that this is iconic, I wouldn't, I wouldn't challenge you because this is so far. So from, from the era, the first five years, this is one show that has basically all of the memorable elements that you remember from that time period. Like there's Mr. Bill, there's blues brothers, you know, there, there, there's so much that just, yeah. Roseanne, Rosanna, Dana, um, father Guido Sarducci, just all of this stuff that says seventies SNL all baked into this one episode. So, Hey, if ever there were an iconic episode. This, this could be it. I, I could totally get on board with that, but let's not, uh, let's not harp on this sketch. Let's keep rolling here. After that, we okay. get another live sketch. Two girls introduce their would be suitors to their loud family. What'd you think? Another brilliant sketch <laughs> <laughs> that had so much going on. It's such an easy game that even like a kid can understand, right? Oh, this is a family that yells and doesn't know how loud they are. But then you take that simple premise and then each adding a walk on, right? Like yep. in any improv scene of a walk on. You got the first boyfriend, you got the second boyfriend, then you got the cop, right? Mm-hmm. And each one is perfect and it builds the world. And we see how different these types of people interact with them. And how my, <laughs> good night, mom and dad. Good night, Gene. Good night, Joan. Good night. <laughs> Loud steps, yeah. slam, sex, pot. <laughs> hey, this is a great pot. I'm really stoned. Stomps back. <laughs> uh, I mean, that just, that floored me. And it just makes me giggle just thinking about it. Everything about this scene is so perfect and simple and funny mm-hmm. and well acted and well played and the reactions are great and Belushi and Aykroyd are different enough to have different approaches to the loud family yes. yeah. and different responses to, which is great which is great just simple wonderful writings that the cop you know breaks that pattern mm-hmm. uh, it's a well crafted wonderful sketch yep yep I agree when this sketch started and you know they come in and everyone's loud and I clue into, oh, that's right. It's one of these kind of gimmicky things, a la, mm-hmm. you know, coneheads or something like that, where right. it's almost like a one gag sketch. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, this is, this is typical. You know, maybe this is where the show's going to lull a little bit. Cause I hadn't watched this in at least a decade. Mm. Uh, so I went into it initially within the first 30 seconds there thinking this is going to be pretty lame. 
And then the boyfriend comes in with the headphones on. I'm like, oh, that, that that's pretty smart. And then, you know, like, especially, you know, the parents go upstairs and you know what's about to happen. <laughs> like, you know, when there's, when, there's, when there's no way to modulate the volume and they're going to bed, you just understand you're going to be watching these kids awkwardly have to absorb that, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, so They don't. The boyfriends d- do. Yes. But the, the girls don't because the they live don't. in this loud world. That's just how, how you know, everybody's <laughs> adapted in that situation. Um, so then you've so got good. like another really smart moment. Now I'm pricking up and I'm like, oh, okay, this is a little smart smarter than I, you know, I'd written it off prematurely here. This is actually unfolding in a very competent and satisfying way. And then, like you said, then, it, then they reverse that. Then it's this the kids. This is really great pun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. So the kids have their moment and then the parents come down to scold them. And then, yeah, the, the cop is the capper at the end. Then they go in the kitchen and they try to have a private conversation, right. but you can hear yes. them through the walls. Yeah. So they, they took that idea the loud family and they explored everything you would want to explore yeah within three minutes there and i'm thinking at the end of it you know what for something that i had low expectations of in three minutes they got to everywhere mm-hmm. i could think they would ever want to go with this premise good for them super tight well-rounded and a lot of fun and i was very surprised <laughs> as played out as the coneheads are do you think they would have had a bigger impact if coneheads were a one-off or do you think that's just too special of a family sketch uh, well, th- I mean, that's, that's tricky to say. I, I think that, um, because they came back as often as they did now, they're, they're part of the cultural fabric. And we, I think we have right. more appreciation for them over time because we've had so much time with the Coneheads. If they'd been a one-off, we might never talk about them. But in terms of funniness, Loud Family's funnier than the Coneheads, right? I would say so. Yeah. The, yeah, right. The, the Coneheads, uh, when it comes right down to it, really hangs a lot just on the the visual absurdity of it. Yeah. Whereas this, uh, it's a funny idea really explored very competently. So uh, I'll, I'll agree with you on that. I think if you took the two and just said, okay, if these were both one-offs, which is the better sketch, I'd agree with you. I think that this is stronger. Yeah. So there, we just blasphemed. Uh, let's keep moving. <laughs> Uh, let's talk about our next live sketch in an episode of the medical drama, mercy killers to well-intentioned orderlies mistakenly kill a post vasectomy outpatient. Even though I was 12 years old, I knew even then this was not a funny sketch. Okay. I did not like this as I usually, I usually fast forwarded through this one. I, I believe. Okay. I think the tone is perfect for what genre of TV show they're going for. These kind of like sixties kind of hospital dramas. And it looks like exactly what those old ones looked like. Mm-hmm. But it's disturbing to watch them be so casual about serial killing, uh, <laughs> euthanizing and killing Garrett. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> he's got it rough enough on the show as it is. Why is he always got to be the guy who gets yeah. done in? It's like watching a seventies sketch about rape or racism. You know, it's like, they don't know what they're doing. They're just having some fun with some taboo topics. Cause they're so white and privileged. They don't really understand what's, you know what I mean? Like okay. they, serial killing orderlies <laughs> is a horrific comedy sketch <laughs> with no real like payoff it's just like isn't it funny if some orderlies killed some people and got way into it like no it's not okay where's the joke where's the joke all right so i <laughs> you know what you're my guest and i always want to uh-huh. you know be respectful towards my guest okay but i think uh i gotta disagree with you on this one and please do and maybe please it's do. maybe it's because i'm you know white and privileged and i have really boorish sensibilities <laughs> that that this didn't rub me the wrong way but i thought this was a lot of fun i thought it was set up really well uh-huh. i like the idea that these guys they're not killing out of malice they're no. killing because they think they're doing good like this is a right a, a ethical moral thing that that they've taken on because nobody else is willing to, to you know make the tough call but 
they didn't bother to, you know, double check whether there were any other beds in the room before they, before they, right. uh, you know, uh, do in the wrong victim. Um, I like that there was a little twist there. I like that. Uh, what's the joke? Well, the, I think the the joke is that they're bad orderlies. Well, you've got these two well-intentioned do-gooders who are doing heinous crimes, completely oblivious to the fact that, that this is a monstrous thing. They think that they're champions of justice and helping these people. Um, but you know, they're so haphazard in their execution that they're, you know, they're, they're doing in the wrong person who's awake and telling them, you know, I'm, I'm here. I'm, you know, I'm not a comatose patient. This is not, you know, the person that you're looking for. Right. If they did more than that one time haphazardly, I would say, okay, that's the game of the scene. Uh, but they only did it haphazardly once. Okay. Well, I can, I can give you that. Maybe I just thought that the premise for it was funnier than you. So, Maybe. you know, by the time they get to the little twist where they, they find the wrong guy, I haven't already been pulled out of it to the point where I'm finding that morbid. I'm finding it hilarious that yeah. if these two guys had half a brain, they'd know that if the guy's fighting back, he's not in a coma. And to me, right. you know, I don't know, maybe I've got some, you know, latent homicidal tendencies. I don't know. But to <laughs> me, that actually was kind of amusing. So I, I don't think that this was the high watermark for the night by any means. Right. No, but for sure. I was having enough fun with the show that I went along for the ride and I, I put my, you know, moral sensitivities aside and just took it for what I think they were going yeah. for. And I thought they got there. I was amused by it. I think there's this whole school of comedy. I think like Michael O'Donoghue kind of strange. Yes. And I like Michael O'Donoghue just fine, but there's a lot of that comedy in the seventies. That was the shock humor of the seventies. was just like, I'm going to say something mm. wrong that sane people don't believe. And that was the joke. And there's no joke there other than you saying something that's going to make me feel weird. That's the, the joke is on me yeah. because I'm feeling awkward and nauseous by what you just said. Um, so it's a little bit of kind of punch down humor a little to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that this falls in line with that. And there's a lot of stuff like that. Like when, um, I know Donahue puts needles in his eyes sure. kind of stuff, which is just like, okay, it's very disturbing, but there's no joke there. It's just, you're just trying to disturb me. Yeah. And, uh, that's totally fair. And this episode yeah. does have a few moments where it does feel very national lampoon. It does feel very, yes. very much. Yeah. We're just going to be provocative for provocative sake. Yes. Yes. For what it's worth. Maybe I was just feeling really good. Cause we'd come off a lot of strong <laughs> sketches and, yep. and I definitely buy into the idea of the hot room when it comes to an episode of yeah. SNL. So maybe I was cutting this some slack, but I had some fun with it. So I got to be true to that. Cause when I came into this, I was going to give this one a thumbs up. I was surprised that it had such like a, a strong visceral negative reaction for you, but <laughs> I, I can totally kind of acquiesce and say, there's definitely shades of let's be shocking just for shocking sake. Sure. Like we're taking what should be a, a very serious topic that I think was just beginning to be debated in the seventies the about, you know, what is ethical when it comes to euthanasia and all those kind of things. So they're taking a weighty topic and they're, they're handling it very casually so i can totally get why that might not be everyone's cup of tea <laughs> yeah and we're about to get in a weekend update where there's a lot of that stuff as well yes yeah and yeah. even in the back half we yeah we, we got a we got a few moments that uh yeah. might strike a nerve so why don't we uh keep rolling on here <laughs> yeah hey gang did you know that our show is made possible solely by the support of listeners like you it's true and in order to keep our cast going for next season we need to reach our funding goal of 100 patreon supporters We've still got a ways to go, so if you want to offer your support now is definitely the time to head over to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash SNL podcast. If you do, you'll get exclusive patron-only rewards, including our members-only podcast feed that provides early access to extended cuts of each new episode that contain upwards of 20 minutes of additional discussion. 
If you're enjoying our show and you want us to stick around for season 45, then please head over to patreon.com forward slash SNL podcast. Come on board. Before we jump back into the cast, I want to give a shout out to some of our newest supporters. Bobby Blankenship of Roanoke, Virginia. Carissa Eubank of Phoenix, Arizona. Grace from Philadelphia, PA. And my mom, Rena Flowers of Corona, Ontario, who despite my best efforts has recently discovered that I host a podcast. To all of our patrons, thank you so very much for your support. And now, back to the show. Let's take a look at Weekend Update. For their lead-in, Jane Curtin and Bill Murray lampoon McDonald's, Neil Armstrong, and Vietnamese refugees. What'd you think? How does this hold up? Oof. Oof. Not so much. <laughs> okay. Not so much. There's a lot of the same kind of humor. Mm. I mean, a Sambo the Restaurant and Bob's Jew Boy was just like, oh, guys, come on. Like, There's a lot of not joke jokes mm. in there. There's like maybe one joke out of the one, two, three, four, seven jokes. Right. They did. I did get a chuckle out of Bill Murray quoting Neil Armstrong in, you know, such dramatic over the top terms. I, I enjoyed him kind of right. you know, screaming in pain there, but I mean, that's a pretty, you know, simple and uh, forgettable, you know, joke in the grand scheme of things. I, I think I would agree with you if, if what I'm hearing from you is that a lot of this is forgettable and what isn't forgettable seems a little tone deaf by our yeah. more uh, considerate modern standards. I, I can, I can see this not. Uh, aging well for for many viewers and uh to be perfectly honest i didn't find a whole lot of it particularly funny either yeah. these were topical jokes that yeah just weren't connecting with me there's a lot of stand-up in the 70s just like it just feels like reference humor sure. it's just like i'm going to mention something that we all know and then that's the joke yep. and i reference something like a like a big mac or a clue the game I, i'm sure at the time you know it it, it was probably working if people were tuned into True. exactly what was in the culture and what was in the news for that week. Maybe, you know, these landed a little stronger, but for yeah, sure. 40 years on. Yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't <laughs> really feeling it as much as I enjoy Jane Curtin at the desk and I enjoy Bill Murray as a personality. Yep. So I was happy to see them and I was happy to jump into this, but yeah, not, not the strongest material, at least not the, the strongest, uh, you know, time tested material. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we quickly move into our first feature, Don Novello back as father Guido Sarducci to raise money for the scandal embroiled Vatican bank. What'd you think? <laughs> I love father Guido Sarducci. I had his album when I was a kid. Oh, I was yeah. on constant repeat in my Walkman. I'll date myself. <laughs> uh, and he's selling gloves and clocks and tchotchkes to help raise money for the Vatican, which is <laughs> amazing. Yeah. And he was a guide to the confessional, which is a direct lift from his standup. But then he does this amazing turn when he, he's selling a clock. With the Zodiac signs right. on behalf of the church, yeah. <laughs> which is just so hitting the Catholic church's baldness for just uh, selective morals sure. in such a way that it must've been so subversive at the time that, you know, people didn't even realize how deep those jokes were going, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, but they're so brilliantly crafted. I love all of his, all of Father Guido Sudici work. And it's not racist because that's how Don Novello talks. So we can all still enjoy it. Sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, fair enough. When I was watching this, I was actively thinking at the time when you're, when you're in an era where people were a lot more passionate about their religions, yep. I'm thinking if I'm a Catholic viewer tuning into this, how much am I squirming right now? Like he's taken some, some pretty sharp digs. He's painting some pretty fun uh, comparisons between like paying your income tax and how, you know, the rich and powerful can kind of skirt their taxes. Well, guess what? You can kind of do that in the Catholic church too, if you know how to play the game. Uh, there, there was a a lot of stuff that he was skewering that, uh, I bet probably, uh, struck a nerve. And if you're on the other side of that coin, probably was really hilarious at the time where I think people just cared more about 
the topic of religion. And so, um, this, this, I felt probably, you know, had some balls. <laughs> That's, I guess my takeaway. Yeah. All you comedy nerds, I highly recommend you go out and look for Father Guido Sergio's album live at the St. Mary's convent. I think it's called, but it's fascinating and it still holds up this many years later. If you can find it through legitimate means, definitely buy it because then, you know, the, the appropriate parties will be compensated. You can also find it on YouTube if you're so inclined. <laughs> so it is definitely out there to be heard if anyone is yep. interested. Okay. Well, uh, I think what we're saying with father Guido Sarducci is yeah. Hard hitting, uh, poignant, well-written stuff back on track. Okay. How about Gilda Radner as Roseanne, Rosanna Dana back to discuss everything, but the great American smokeout. Absolutely. Classic. Yeah. Not only classic character, but classic turn of that character. Because you get the, first of all, you get New Jersey jokes, which mm-hmm. I was living in New Jersey at the time. And <laughs> I didn't even know New Jersey jokes were a thing because I lived in New Jersey. People in New Jersey don't make New Jersey jokes until you hear on Saturday Night Live. So yeah, Saturday Night Live taught me that New Jersey was something to be ashamed of. Yes, reviled these filthy people across the river. But then you get the sweat and the sauna stuff, which is always great hearing her do gross stuff. And sure. Gilda Radner doing just gross, disgusting <laughs> bodily functions, which she thinks is so funny. And then the Dr. Joyce Brothers uh, song about it. And it's, right. it's, it's just fantastic top to bottom. It's this iconic turn of a Roseanne, Rosanna Dana and everything we love about her. Yep. It was a lot of fun. And yeah, this is as good as I think probably any Roseanne, Rosanna Dana. So again, if, if we're talking about an episode of SNL being iconic, what a great thing to include in weekend update. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fun. I love how much she will linger on these little gross minutia, like the little mm-hmm. you know, bead of sweat at the end of the nose. <laughs> like she has eight lines on just belly buttons at one point, you know, yeah. like, you know, it, it's, it's that willingness to just kind of dig in to uh, a weird, gross little topic and just, you know, blow it out for all it's worth that I, I think was a lot of fun here. Yeah. So I had fun with this, this, this again, felt very right, <laughs> you know, for this era and this it episode. still holds up. Yeah. It's still funny. Yep. Yep. I had a lot of fun with it too. Uh, that is our weekend update. Let's take a look at the back half of the show mm-hmm. rather than have our musical performances spread out or prior to weekend update. In this case, we just get one musical performance, which is the blues brothers doing a medley of got everything I need almost and B movie boxcar blues and an extended jam. There you go. So what'd you think? I love it. I'm always singing, got everything I need almost. Mm-hmm. I sing that to my wife when we're about to leave the house and she asks if we have everything we need. And I always sing that <laughs> I have everything I need almost. And I don't have you cause you're not ready to walk out the door yet. Oh, patient woman. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, but I love this mini concert medley. You even get them dancing together like they do in the movie. Right. And I love these two songs so much. They're, they're fantastic deep cuts yeah. in the Blues Brother repertoire. And they're just such a delightful musical number. Mm-hmm. Uh, seeing the band come together and just what it must have felt like to see them live. I would love to see the Blues Brothers live. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. My hunch was that this was probably locked down from their their touring act that it, the sure. choreography just seemed really really on point so um again because they were so comfortable with these characters and had done this so much everything just feels so effortless and i really just loved the energy of the performances and how it, it didn't feel like uh anyone was trying too hard to really uh pull off as much as they pulled off you know for as much as they're moving around the stage doing their shtick everyone just knew what they were doing and i really mm-hmm. like that and mm-hmm. uh it, it just it, it was just fun uh i don't know what else to say you know we already talked about the blues brothers a lot up front so i, I think we've got our bases covered but hey this was solid this was fun and again right when you want to be picking up that energy for the back half material mm-hmm. i feel like this definitely did the trick yep excellent okay let's keep rolling here we get our first pre-tape of the night mr bill goes fishing 
Did we want to check in on Mr. Bill? <laughs> I don't mind Mr. Bill. It's just, it's still a lot of that humor of the cruel that was sure. so funny in the seventies. I was doing some like, kind of like deep thinking about like, what was that about? Why is being cruel so funny, especially back then? Mm-hmm. I think it comes from this generation uh, that kind of witnessed this absurd violence of the Vietnam war. It's over. And you mix that with the comfort of the kids who didn't have to go. Mm. You know what I mean? And it's kind of survivor's guilt, but there's still that violence in their subconscious that they have sure. to get out somehow. And it comes out in their humor. And I think that's kind of where that must have come from and why that was funny at the time. Yeah, I could see that being some sort of like morbid catharsis for the nation as it's yeah. trying to heal from, you know, the scars of, of Vietnam and just, yeah, just how much of a fervor a whole generation was worked up into. I, I can see it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it causing even something like comedy to go in strange directions that, that feel really out of time. You know, when you look at them after the fact, it's such a dark, absurd reality that you have to live in. And then you have these wise asses who have like kind of free reign to do anything they want on television. Sure. That's, what's going to spill out of their id that and their ego that they have to kind of like on a weekly churn, come up with like, what's funny, what's funny, what's funny. Yep. And sometimes that devolves into sticking needles in your eyeballs (laughs) or, or pointing a gun at a puppy. Beautiful. I, I have my profound soundbite for the night. I don't think we're going to get a deeper analysis of a Mr. Bill sketch than that. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to say, okay, sure. Um, fish hooks, plasticine dogs, yeah, whatever. Uh, you've seen one Mr. Bill, you've seen them all. Yep. He never fares well. <laughs> so, uh, let's keep rolling on. We get a live sketch on NBC's The Tomorrow Show. Tom Snyder asks, what's next for Linda Blair? What'd you think? Great impressions. I loved both these. Good take on the characters mm-hmm. themselves. I love how he has no segues and he makes it all about him no matter what it is. Right. It always brings it back to him. I love his Tom Slater impression because he wants to be cool. Yes. He kind of knows the lingo, but he doesn't have the temperament to be cool. Mm-hmm. So he can't like ever find that cool vibe that Tom Snyder is forever trying to relate to the hip, cool young people. Like think about the, the Mick Jagger sketch when he's trying to teach Mick Jagger right. how to dance. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just such a great take on Tom Snyder and this whole genre of charlie rose larry king one-on-one interviews Mm -hmm. yeah the linda blair stuff is fantastic too one thing that i like about a lot of the characters that dan Aykroyd would draw is they're fuddy duddies but there's always a little moment where there's a hint that they have like serious worldly knowledge Mm -hmm. you know like they're they're maybe a little more informed or you know a little sharper than they they generally come off and you get a little bit of that in here where he can kind of carry on a conversation about you know cocaine or whatever just very casually like yeah yeah i I get it this is all cool with me like there's there's a sense that uh there's a worldliness about his characters that kind of betrays how they're how they're set up as sort of the old person that shouldn't be able to relate to this, you know, this young starlet in the midst of a Lindsay Lohan esque crisis. So I, I think there's just something funny there. And I, you see that peppered in a lot of stuff that I think I'm assuming Ackroyd probably had a hand in, in writing a lot of this. For and sure. I, I think that maybe that's something that just kind of lines up with his, his take and how he likes to explore characters. Um, so I was finding that amusing. Like you mentioned, there's a few Tom Snyder outings. I, I personally think the Mick Jagger one is probably uh, maybe a little more iconic mm-hmm. if that's kind of how we're benchmarking this show, but this was still fun for what it was. And Carrie Fisher looks surprisingly like Linda Blair, you mm-hmm. know, with the, you know, the chipmunk cheeks and mm-hmm. uh, doughy eyes. It just, uh, it's, it's funny that she kind of was able to inhabit that pretty, pretty confidently. Yeah. So yeah, this was good. This was good enough for back half of the show kind of material. Yep. All right. After that, we get another live sketch. A Marine on shore leave is drawn in by the feminine wiles of a financial advisor. I mean, French prostitute. I know. I mean, financial advisor. 
Uh, John, I'd never seen the sketch before. Oh, did they cut it out? No, my VHS copy that my parents made started Godspell right after the Linda Blair sketch. Oh. So I had never seen the sketch uh, in my years of devotion to this episode. Uh, so it was a real thrill uh, to see your version come through with this bonus sketch. Excellent. Well, I'm glad that I could introduce you to a, you know, a lost nugget of SNL. What a treat. So what'd you think of the sketch? Uh, it got better the more I watched it. Okay. I think there is something there about the approach that uh, an old French whore <laughs> in a whorehouse has as a somebody's trying to sell you financial advice. Um, actually, I have experience with both of those. I was in an old French whorehouse. I was on a second city tour. And uh, no, it was a Boom Chicago. It was in Boom Chicago. We went to France. And we found this old French whorehouse that we had to go in and to see what it was. And it was these ladies in lingerie who just wanted glasses of champagne. I was like, this is exactly like a Tina Fey uh, sketch come to life. Because she used to have this old French whore character that she did in Second City that she eventually got Garth Brooks to do. Okay. Uh, when they came up kids with old French whores for a game show. Okay. Tina Fey threw her old character at Garth Brooks and said, all right, if you only do anything, I'm going to dress you up as an old French whore. He's like, bring it on. So I went in there. We went in there because... Our, our obsession with Tina Fey, but um, I also have experience with these financial advisors who are constantly sending me emails and uh, offers for a steak dinner if they want to sit down and right. like, discuss my retirement plans. And so the approach is very, very similar mm-hmm. of uh, this kind of faux interest in you yeah. to sell you something. Uh, and it's very funny that they align those two because they ride the fence very well. It's just not as executed as well, I think, as the premises. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little slow. It drags. I don't understand the blushy thing up top. It's a little out of place. I think they should just get to the Bill Murray section. Um, but everything else about it was spot on. The accents were fine. The costuming was fine. The music was great. Uh, just, you know, the writing didn't just pop as much as it could have. I think the joke, the premise was there. The jokes were not. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. I really thought the premise was funny. As soon as I clued into really the comparison that they're making that, yeah, you know, financial advisors can be pretty much as slimy, you know, as a, as a cheap bar prostitute. Um, <laughs> I, I really like that idea. And I, I kind of like the idea that they were, they were kind of showing that this is a game that these girls run in this bar yes. all the time. And it's almost like that their broker, or whatever, you know, he's kind of like their pimp or whatever, right? Like he's kind of like, uh, managing all this and kind of keeping them in line or whatever. So you've got some, some layers and some subtlety in there that, uh, is very interesting, you know, as, as you work your way through the sketch and are trying to figure out exactly what the girl's angle is, because they don't come right out and show you, you assume that they're just prostitutes, plain and simple. You don't really get into the idea that no, they've upped their game. They realize there's a lot more money in mutual funds uh-huh. than there is in, you know, whoring. So, um, <laughs> There, there's something very clever about what's unfolding on the screen, but you're right. There isn't a lot of just fantastic whiz bang jokes that, that really kind of sell it as mm-hmm. much as, as I would have liked. So at the end of this, I was thinking, oh, you know, yeah, clever conceptually. I really enjoyed that. And I, and I, I feel there's some truth there. So that's always amusing too, but no, not exceptionally funny. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, let's round things out here. Our last live sketch of the night. Leonard Pinth Garnell introduces Western audiences to bad red Chinese ballet. What'd you make of this one? I loved it. It was so much fun. Another scene I hadn't ever seen before. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, being from being living in Austin, uh, a special shout out to Austin, Texas. Right. And the Austin Chamber of Commerce, where I previously had a day job, uh, which was kind of fun. And then I love how he sets up the Yankee 
See if you can see the overt symbolism of the Yankee. Yeah, the imperialist. The Yankee, yeah. imperialist Yankee. And then <laughs> right. Garrett comes and takes a slide <laughs> as a New York Yankee. Yeah. Uh, everything about it. I love those bad theater. I love, you can tell whoever writes it just really does love bad theater. Not mm-hmm. like in a mocking way, but just loves it. Can see the, the earnestness of it. Right. Yeah. I love those installments. And this was, this was just a great one. Yep. Yeah. It was fun. Like you had touched on the writing where Leonard Pinth Garnell sets up you know what we're about to see there's so much like detail in how he's describing you know how the scene's gonna unfold and then at the end where you know he's giving the context and here's who played this and here's who played that it feels very true to what i would have remembered watching masterpiece theater so it just right there it feels authentic and then just to throw this ridiculous scene in the middle Mm -hmm. to me that's that's perfect because you you get something that isn't winking on either side of it but in the middle it is so bad and so ridiculous that the fact that he can continue to talk about it in you know serious artistic terms to me is great Aykroyd is so good at that dense writing he's so good at that dense writing and dense line delivery too yeah this was uh surprisingly charming now to round out the episode we get a pre-tape. It's a Schiller's reel. We've seen a few of these. This time, Roman Holiday, where the wife of a beleaguered and subsequently deceased man is charmed by a plethora of male Roman locals. What'd you think of this guy? I laughed a lot uh, yeah. during it. It took is a long walk to get there, which, you know, mm-hmm. of course, 60s and 70s humor allows you like a, that long walk to right, get right. to where you're going, especially 70s humor. And once it paid off, once you see him start like <laughs> nuzzling her neck, and like, yes. what's going on? And then the guy has a heart attack. <laughs> What a payoff. And you just got to like, you got to be listening the whole time. And it seems so boring. And after a minute or two of her rambling on, you, you want to tune out uh, and, and like, all right, just get to the joke. And then when the joke comes, the payoff is there. Right. And it just, it's nonstop laughs to the end of it. Very delightful and very yep. fun and very silly. Yeah. I, uh, I enjoyed that. There's some subtlety to how they set up the husband character mm-hmm. before you really understand what it's driving towards. There's all sorts of shots of he's carrying all the luggage where she's just kind of, you know, dancing around and just soaking in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of like carrying all the weight and you just kind of think, well, yeah, that's what a husband would do. Right. Like you don't really realize that that is telegraphing the joke, but you're not going to appreciate it for another two minutes. So yeah, you're, you're she's right. This him. was a slow burn. <laughs> yeah. She's yeah. Effectively through this trip, you know, he's going up the stairs and you can just feel his little heart about to burst out of his chest, you know, with all the bags or whatever. And she's just having fun while all these, you know, these um, kind of like, tourist indulgences all these little people that make their living off of you know selling uh-huh. trinkets and stuff to tourists um she's just taking in all of that and he's just in the background just you know bearing it all and she's completely unfazed when you know he's no longer part of the picture and she can just take the insurance money and have the vacation of a lifetime that's uh ridiculous a little dark a little ridiculous and uh it does land it like you said it takes a while to get there right but at the end i was amused i'm like oh well that poor guy <laughs> you know, like he had no idea he's treating his wife to this trip and and this is this is how it's gonna end for him and they frame it like she's showing somebody how she met her husband you know right. you're like, like like this is how she met her husband her current husband yeah it's totally upbeat <laughs> like this is their wedding video almost yes. you know like just yes. married should have come as an overlay on the final <laughs> shot or whatever uh yeah uh very bizarre fun little way to round out the night and i enjoyed it more than i expected when it when it started and it's that you know like eight millimeter footage and i'm thinking oh this is going to be you know a a slow filmed piece that probably isn't going to connect with me i was just on the verge of checking out and then it blossoms and Mm -hmm. i had fun and i liked it and what a, a great way to round out the night yeah that is our episode recap so let's talk moment of the night moment of the night i i still think it's that moment when Aykroyd and Belushi just explode 
sure. into, into Soul Man. It's just, it's too iconic of a moment. And it's, it just says, I am here. We're here. We're legit. And we are here to entertain you. And uh, it's everything good about Silent Live wrapped up into one moment. Okay. Uh, that was going to be my moment. And as you're saying <laughs> that, I'm trying to like scan through and see if there's something else that I want to talk about. But honestly, I agree. I just think that the energy that they set at the outset of the show with soul man. And like you said, all of those classic beats that we now know, you know, we know Mm -hmm. that they stand their heads down, you know, briefcase Mm -hmm. in front. And then, yeah, this just release of, of, uh, you know, raw, uh, ridiculous flailing dancing. Um, we know it, we know it's coming, but I, I like to try and put myself in the position of the audience members Mm -hmm. who maybe haven't seen it before, you know, just maybe don't understand just uh, how much fun it's going to be to see that performance live and just how electric it it made Mm -hmm. everything and how the show was kind of propped up in a a way because they came out a little uh, ferocious there. So um, I'm giving it to specifically, you know, the introduction of the blues brothers at the beginning, you know, you've got the, Mm -hmm. you've got the briefcase with the uh, handcuffs and you know, the, the whole shtick. Yep. to lead up to that moment of uh, exuberant music. Um, that was working. It was a great way to start the show. It makes me understand why they would warm the audience up with this kind of stuff. Cause it's totally effective. It, it gets you every time yeah, for sure. Yep. Yep. How about best sketch? Uh, beach blanket bingo for sure. Mm-hmm. Beach blanket bingo was everything to me as a child. Uh, just full cast sketch, uh, soft opening, the special effects, the song, all the writers having lines, Franklin Davis having characters, <laughs> the really good Vincent Price impression combined with the made up impression of Eric Von Zipper, mm-hmm. everybody in their bathing suits, good funny jokes. It's just everything I love about sketch comedy. I love full cast scenes. I love interesting transitions. I love song. I love uh, heightening characters, impressions. Like it has everything you'd ever want in a sketch all combined into one sketch. Sure. I can get on board with that. I was flirting with loud family simply because I think as a case study and just a, like a well-crafted sketch that fully explores its premise and just ends in a very satisfying way. Uh, I felt that it was strong, but you're right. There's spectacle here. There's something very iconic. (laughs) You know, if we're going to go back to our running theme here Mm -hmm. in the beach blanket bimbo sketch, you see everybody that should be on screen. And then a few more that it's, it's, it's a real treat to just even get them in the background. Like even Brian Doyle Murray, you forget that, you know, he was, he was palling around with the show at this point too. Uh, there's just, there's just a lot of SNL there for a fan to absorb. So you, you really can't deny that it was the biggest moment of the night. Mm -hmm. It was like the best production values of the Mm -hmm. night. It was the meatiest for most of the cast. It, It kind of felt in a way like, um, what we might've gotten from like a, a diner lobster or a bodega bathroom where mm-hmm. it's, it's the one where the cast wants to pull out all the stops yes. because it's a lot of fun for them yes. and you feel how much enjoyment they're having in the moment. And part of that feeds into the infectiousness of it. Yeah. How about your MVP? Ackroyd. Okay. He did everything. Yeah. Any moment in particular that put him over the top? Oh my God. Just his range. And like, he's in everything and he does everything so perfectly. And, uh, he, um, you know, just how he shifts from character to character and spot on impression to spot on impression and dancing and singing and just everything about him was perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, we're in total agreement. It was a big night for him. He got a lot of the really meaty dialogue and just the, the fun character moments. I wanted to give an honorable mention to Carrie Fisher because as a first time host, mm-hmm. it's very common to see untested performers maybe not be put right front and center where they have difficult cues to hit. They have 
lots of dialogue. They have, mm-hmm. you know, uh, meaty characters to explore where they, they are a, a pivotal part of a sketch rather than a support. Sometimes like sometimes the show needs to play it safe if they're not really sure that maybe a performer can really come in and, and own a sketch. And I felt like there was enough moments throughout the show where she was front and center that it, it just kind of said that she came to play that the show had some confidence in her. And when they wanted to go big, they knew that she could be part of it. Like the, the beach blanket thing. Yes. That's a, a pretty heavy first sketch to throw a first time host into. She was vetted. You know, the show knew she was cool and that they could do these fun things with her. It's Debbie Reynolds' kid. She can handle that. Exactly. So uh, <laughs> there, there's some competence there that, that I was tapping yeah. into that I feel the show was feeling. So I think that she deserves a round of applause for carrying herself very well. But you're absolutely right that Ackroyd got a lot of really fun material too. So uh, I'm going to agree with you just with that right. little asterisk. Now, big question. Mm-hmm. On a scale of classic, great, decent, weak, or train wreck, how would you rate this episode? I'm going to back off from Iconic because there's a couple stinkers. Okay. So I'm going to go Classic. All right. Uh, and since we don't technically have an Iconic in our rating, I think uh, Classic's where I'm going to land too. Okay. This definitely is one of the most SNL-y of the yes. SNL-y episodes. Yes. You know, like this This is what you think of when you think first five years. It's all there on display. The time capsule episode. Yeah. And it hits a lot more than it misses. And uh, it, it really worked. And right up to the end, I was still having fun with it. Uh, I can't fault it. Yep. This is the one that you put in the time capsule. Absolutely. Um, you want to remind people where they can go to find out more about Out of Bounds Festival before we call it a night? Absolutely. Uh, please check out outofboundscomedy.com to find out more about the festival over Labor Day weekend uh, in Austin, Texas, as well as checking out coldtowntheater.com for comedy shows seven nights a week. And if you like comedy and can't make it to Austin, please go to iTunes and listen to Victrola Podcast. And if you can't listen, at least give us a five-star rating. <laughs> sure. Now, just let people know what Victrola Podcast is. Like, what genre? What are we talking about here? Victrola Podcast is a sketch comedy podcast created from improvised scenes from some of Cold Town's best performers. Uh, we improvise live in a studio apartment together, and that gets edited down to a tight sketch. Uh, so it feels like you're listening to one of those old-school Lemmings uh, National Lampoon Radio Hour albums. Um, it's that fast-paced and that absurd. Very good. Well, Dave, it's been a pleasure as always. Thank you. All the best with your festival. And uh, that's a cast. Thanks to my guest, Dave Buckman. You can connect with Dave on Twitter at Dave Buckman. And thanks as well to our most generous patrons, Sam Bowers, Aaron and Trader, Neil Weinstein, and Justin Gardner. If you're enjoying our show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever app you prefer to listen on. Your subscription helps us grow and your support is greatly appreciated. We'll be back soon with a fun crossover review of the 1992 feature film Wayne's World that I recorded with the fine folks over at the Retro Movie Roundtable podcast. Until then, this has been episode number 83 of the Saturday Night Live After Party podcast. I'm John Murray. Good night and have a pleasant tomorrow. Next week, join us for an encore presentation of the Saturday Night Live show hosted by Paul Simon with a special guest, George Harrison. Two weeks from tonight, we'll be back live on the air with host Walter Matthau. This is Don Pardo. Good night.
green or blue. You will find the boy that's right for you. I wanna wear two piece bathing suit. I wanna find the boy that's really cute. That love letters in the church on the church when it's hot when you're the new kid on earth. Oh oh, you're the new kid on earth. Oh oh, you're the new kid on earth. Oh 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 Eric Von Zipper. Hey, I heard there was a new broad on the beach. I dig that crazy chick. She's got more curves than the Ventura Freeway. Hi, <laughs> kids. Remember that recording artist friend I was telling you about? Well, here he is. Hey, look, everybody, it's Chubby Checker! Chubby Checker! Wow! Hi, gang. Do you kids like to have fun? Yeah! Great, because there's nothing I like better than entertaining white middle class kids on the beach. <laughs> so come on, everybody, let's twist. Can I have this twist, Your Highness? Come on and twist in a two-faced suit with a twisting girl who's really cute. I love letters in the sand and surf. Thank you, Chubby, for the new twist. Ah, oh, no.